The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. So you think about how people have always received electricity. It's been from the grid, right? So there's a power plant a few hundred miles away, generates electricity, comes through the wires. That's what you use. I guess what I would start off with, right, is that if you're going to build a vertical farming facility, energy needs to be a core competency of what you do. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ag tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast Season 7, regular listeners, welcome back. If you are a new listener, I'm so glad you've decided to take a chance on this show. And if you're looking for conversations where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world, you're in the right place. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, it was our first foray out to Iceland of all places, which is somewhere magical that I want to visit at some point. I've always had a, a dream to get out to Reykjavik. And we had a great conversation with Dr. Isaac Berzin. He's the founder and CTO at Vaxa Life. And it's a company that's developing sustainable algae-based feed and food ingredients. Dr. Isaac was named one of the 100 most influential people in politics, business, and science in 2008 by Time Magazine for his work in sustainability and climate change. Great conversation about the biology of algae and its role in the food chain, his experience working with supplements at Qualitas Health, and the work they're doing at Vaxa to create alternative foods rich in vitamins, minerals, and proteins. It was really an eye-opening education for me on all the benefits of algae and how it relates to what they're doing in a vertical farming environment. Really fascinating. This week, the fun continues with Tim Haid. He's the co-founder and COO of Scale Microgrids, a company that builds and invests in the world's most cutting-edge microgrid solutions. In this episode, Tim and I talk about the importance of making our energy infrastructure cleaner, more affordable, and more resilient. He talks a little bit about the vulnerability of our power grids, the concept of decentralization, and some of the actions we have to take to address the biggest problem faced in humanity, climate change, and also how this whole conversation relates to what's happening in the world of vertical farming. Again, I'm fascinated by these conversations because I'm learning more with each episode, and this topic of energy is front of mind for a lot of folks in this space recently, so I'm sure you'll definitely learn something as well. Okay, don't forget, if you're enjoying this episode or past episode, I'd love it if you leave a rating or review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFB so I can read yours out next. So let's jump into this conversation with Tim. But before we do, a couple of words from the amazing folks that support this show. This episode is brought to you by Indoor AgCon 2023. I'm so happy to have been working with the team last year. Indoor AgCon 2022 was my very first indoor farming conference. So it was really eye-opening for me. So I'll always be grateful to the team there for rolling out the carpet for me. <laughs> and I uh, really had a good time meeting a lot of past guests and excited to join them again this year. Entering its 10th year in a row, it's the largest trade show and conference for vertical farming and CEA, and it's returning to Caesars Forum Conference Center in Las Vegas on February 27th and 28th of 2023. Once again, they'll be co-located with the National Growers Association show as well, which is a really good fit for them. The conference keeps growing, and this year it's doubled in size. The expo floor now has more than 170 booths 
filled with new product resources and solutions to explore. You'll hear from experts, including CEOs, growers, investors, and others in the field during this full-scale educational conference. As always, you'll be able to connect with peers, grocers, and other potential new business partners at their great networking events. I haven't even gotten to the best part. The team at Indoor AgCon has given listeners of this show 20% off their full access conference pass. All you have to do is use promo code VFP, as in Vertical Farming Podcast, and sign up at indoor.ag. See you there. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that this is the space where I get to talk about some of the fantastic sponsors and supporters of this show. If you are interested in being one of those sponsors, by all means, reach out to me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We've got inventory available for season seven, and the reach of the show just continues to increase year over year. And we'd love to partner with you and get the word out about your company or service. So Tim Hague, co-founder and CEO of Scale Microgrids, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Harry. I appreciate you making the time. We are getting close to the end of the year. <laughs> Does that mean usually for you that it's winding down time or is it hibernation time or personally what's like end of the year usually mean for you? Yeah, no, the end of the year is chaos. So, you know, typically between now and, uh, I don't know, December 15th, something like that is peak chaos. And then, you know, hoping, got our fingers crossed that the last two weeks of December will be pretty chill, but it never seems to work out like that. So so we'll figure it out. And where's home for you? So I am calling in from Santa Barbara, California. I'm actually a recent California transplant. We started our business in the Northeast and we're really concentrated on that for a few years. But last two, three years, we've been building our business in California. And now it's about 75% of the new projects we're building are in the state. We can talk more about why. But it's not a bad place to call home. So it's getting text messages from all my friends and family in the you know New England area right now who are freezing, and uh, I am not, so I'm all right with it. <laughs> yeah, so I can definitely relate. I grew up in Yonkers, New York, just outside New York City. But I lived New York City is really my home. That's where I've I moved out of there in 2014, and I was married at the time. And we actually moved to LA, but I was there for four years. And home now is Minneapolis, Minnesota. So. Definitely had a taste of both coasts, and I'm familiar with the with the cold weather from my time in New York, and I'm getting reacquainted with it <laughs> here in Minnesota. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there are pluses and minuses. I definitely miss the seasons, but when I have a friend in Buffalo, New York, who's getting ready for like six feet of snow or something like that, and I don't miss it on days like that. <laughs> so you went to school in Stanford? Oh, I went to grad school, yeah. So I actually did my undergrad at the Air Force Academy and was in my first kind of career was a military officer, then went to grad school at Stanford and got into distributed energy, which kind of led me to the intersection of energy and farming, which is, I think, probably what we'll get into a lot today. Yeah. Well, thank you for your service. I appreciate that. And I'm always curious, like where folks' mindset are, you know, when they make decisions like that. So where were you, if you can recall back to making that decision to join the Air Force? Yeah. So... You know, the decision for me to join the Air Force was pretty petty. I mean, I was, I didn't have any money to go to college and it was free and that seemed like a good deal at the time. So I kind of, you know, got into it without putting a lot of thought about what being in the military would be like. I went to basic training in June of 2001. And so then like my fourth or fifth day of school is 9-11. And so, you know, what it meant to be in the military changed very, very quickly in a very brief period of time. And, you know, look, I think overall, right, like any experience, there was a lot of pluses, a lot of minuses. But I think, you know, one thing the military really helped me develop was my ability to think about systems, right? And that's essentially what, you know, doing the job I had in the military is about is kind of like a lot of if-then statements, right? And sort of thinking about things from a bigger picture standpoint. And, you know, subsequently, I guess the other part of it, right, which is relevant is being in the military is also what got me very inspired to work on climate, right? So it's one of the things we don't talk about a lot, but for the last 25, 30 years, right, the Department of Defense has looked at climate change as the number one national security threat over, you know, sort of time. And so I actually did some work on that while I was in the Pentagon. And it kind of blew my mind, right? So as I transitioned out of the military, that was a thing that I was really, really interested in working on. 
I started to, you know, learn about the electric grid and sort of the energy systems that we have in place and found that, you know, the way I thought about things was pretty conducive to making change in this industry. And that's how we got started. And that was I, 11, 12 years ago. So it's been a wild ride since then. That's crazy. Yeah. I was actually living in New York City during 9-11. So I, I witnessed that, like I had a front row seat for that. It was pretty wild and pretty, one of those moments in history where you're just like, when you're like 30, 40, 50 years out, you know, telling kids, grandkids about it, you're just like, it's a weird moment. And I think what recently happened with COVID is another moment where the whole, sort of the whole world was feeling it at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think 9-11 definitely changed the world. It changed the way I look at the world and COVID did the same thing, right? And I think at the end, you know, the commonality, right, is that it's in those moments that you kind of start to understand our shared humanity, right? And that we're all on this rock floating through outer space together and we got to try to make it work for each other. And I think that's kind of been my takeaway from both of those huge events and is really a driver of the work we try to do at, at scale microgrids just, you know, kind of do what we can to make our energy system more sustainable, more resilient, more just, and to sort of do our part. And, uh, and yeah, you know, events like that kind of put that, push that to the front of your mind. One of the things that I've always found fascinating about younger kids or kids, I guess, for the most part, entering the military is the amount of technology you get exposed to. And then the systems and the machines and everything that normal folks, (laughs) you know, probably wouldn't, access until they maybe they graduated with a master's in engineering. But I think very quickly, you know, you're given a lot of responsibilities. And I think it, I mean, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm, I'm sure from a maturity perspective, it ramps up that curve pretty quickly. Yeah, definitely. Right. I mean, I think, and look, I don't know if this is the best thing in the world or not. Right. But when you think about, you know, the Department of Defense and what the capabilities our military has are, it kind of redefines the realm of the possible. Right. And so, you know, you think about, you know, vertical farming or clean tech, like what I focus on, and you go talk to investors and they tell you that like technology ideas are crazy. And that might be true from like a dollars and cents finance standpoint in certain situations. But when you've seen the things I've seen, right, you realize that like, yeah, things happen really fast. And, uh, and like, if you're, if we have a properly motivated society, there's really no limit to what we can accomplish. And look, I think when it comes to climate, right, one of the things that's really shaped my view on it is part of being in the military and coming from a military academy is learning a lot about World War II, right, which is kind of the culminating, you know, military experience for the United States still to this day. And what they were able to do in a three, four year time frame was unbelievable, right? It exceeded everyone's expectations by an exponential factor. And so you start thinking about it. And if you can figure out a way to you know, generate that kind of momentum, that's the reason to have hope about uh, you know, the climate future we're heading toward. But it really is going to take like, that kind of effort, right? Everyone in these different industries coming together, focusing on the problem, setting their differences aside, and just making progress. And look, I mean, there are a lot of pessimists in our industry, right? And you know, as to whether or not that can happen or not, I don't know. I think it's, you know, we're in better shape today than we were 10 years ago, for sure. Are we moving fast enough? Definitely not. But, you know, that's ultimately what we aspire to be part of, right? Is we want to be a little piece of this global effort to try to solve the biggest problem humanity's ever faced, which is climate. And a lot of the folks we work in the agriculture community are trying to solve the same problem from a different angle, which is why we like working with And so one of the things you mentioned is Because of that front row seat, you had to the current condition of our energy grid. Are there things that most folks would not or would be surprised about if you explained in terms of like the the capacity of it or the ability for it to sustain like intense experiences? You know, we saw a little bit of taste of that in Texas. I think it was last year when there was a winter and the grid went down. And I think a lot of people just assume, you know, you you plug your appliance into the outlet and then the power gets its way there somehow. But I think we don't really think about how stable it is. And I think you had a front row seat to seeing just how vulnerable we are when it comes to understanding the grid for this country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's sort of the thing that was most surprising to me when I started to really understand about, you know, grid architecture and, you know, the macro grid, right? Really in the United States, we have three independent electric grids. There's what's called the Eastern Interconnect, 
which is kind of east of Colorado. There's the Western Interconnect, which is west of Colorado. And then Texas has its own grid called ERCOT. And, you know, it's extremely fragile, right? When you think about this from a threat assessment standpoint, whether it's, you know, physical impacts from things like climate change, extreme storms, extreme weather events, things like that, whether it's in the cyber realm, and there's a lot of cyber concerns when it comes to grid and the grid architecture and cyber safety, or when you think about it in terms of, you know, physical attacks, right? There's a lot of equipment that makes our grid work that's very rare and very difficult to replace, right? And so there's a lot of literature that's been written about this. One of my favorite books is a book written by Ted Koppel called Lights Out, which kind of walks through all the different scenarios where large regional power outages could occur in the United States and, you know, sort of explores what the impact on our society would be. I mean, it's pretty terrifying, right? And I think, you know, one of the things people don't think about a lot is, you know, how resilient that infrastructure is, right? Our utilities and our, you know, public service commissions and all the folks that operate the grid, you know, really do a remarkable job of keeping the lights on for the most part. But essentially what they're doing, right, is they're duct taping together a system that's kind of been hodgepodge together over 120 years. And a lot of the equipment that we use today to transmit and distribute electricity is 100 years old, right? And so, you know, in addition to, you know, the big talking point, which is decarbonization, we also have to be doing a lot more thinking about the health and safety aspects of our electric grid. And that's one of the areas where, you know, my company, which is a distributed energy company, spends a lot of time trying to educate people, especially in the vertical farming community who are obviously, you know, their business is very susceptible to long duration power outages and it's a material threat to, you know, the industry as a whole. You know, I think a lot of people take it for granted and, you know, we're hoping that we can kind of be proactive in helping to sure some of this stuff up before something really bad happens. And it doesn't take a big event like, you know, the freeze in Texas, which killed over 60 people. And, you know, I cost, I think, like dozens of billions of dollars in economic damage. But, you know, what people don't realize about that event is they were literally 30 seconds away from blowing the grid up and potentially not having power for months. And those are the types of situations as we, you know, move into a climate future with increasingly unstable weather as we move into, you know, a cyber realm where, you know, it doesn't necessarily take state actors to access the power grid and shut things off or mess around, but can kind of be like a kid in his basement, right? Those threats are very, very real. We don't think about them a lot. We don't think about them enough, but they should be driving our decision-making and too often they're not. Yeah. A lot of those will give listener room to pause and be a little bit worried, but I think we want to get out of this conversation is hopefully some hope for what some opportunities are. And so I think, you know, obviously having had that experience in the Air Force prior to Scale Microgrids, you spent some time with Energy Rudox, which is now Centrica. Can you talk a little bit about your experience there and how, you know, that eventually led what would be present day with Scale? Yeah. So kind of the theme of my career in the energy industry has been decentralization, right? So if you think broadly from like an energy transition standpoint, there's kind of, you know, two facets to how we're going to solve climate change, right? The first is generally referred to as electrify everything, right? So if you think about global carbon emissions today, roughly a third come from transportation, roughly a third come from electric power production, and then roughly a third come from heavy industry and agriculture, right? That's kind of the allotment. And in order for us to get to where we need to be in order to mitigate climate change, we essentially have to convert all those fossil-driven processes to renewable electricity. So that's kind of the first step in solving climate change from an energy transition standpoint. Then the second stage is how do you electrify everything, right? And I think there's really three principles that we have to sort of abide by in order to do that. The first is obviously decarbonization, right? So we have to use a lot of, a lot of renewable or low carbon energy in order to generate the electricity on our grid. The second, and this is the thing we don't talk about a lot, is decentralization, right? So if you think about the electric power industry, which has been a commercial product for roughly 120 years, it's always been a top-down model, right? And so you've always built really, really big power plants and then connected that to load via this series of transmission and distribution lines. 
And the reason that that was done originally was because of the way we generated power in economies of scale. As the way we've generated power has changed and we're moving more towards solar and storage being the backbone of the grid, that's opened up the opportunity to build a distributed bottom-up network. And that's really where the resiliency piece comes into play, right? Is that if you just think about this at the highest level, you don't want single points of failure, right? So if you have one power plant that's responsible for you know, lighting a million homes and something happens to that one power plant, you're in trouble. If you have a million power plants that are you know, energizing a million homes, uh, that's a much, that threat profile is much more secure. And so you know, decarbonization, decentralization, and then the third thing is digitization, right? And so essentially our entire electric grid was built and a lot of it still runs on an analog system. What we can do from a digitization standpoint is pretty remarkable and we're just kind of scratching the surface of that. And so that's basically the recipe for you know, solving climate change, right? Is electrify everything and then within electrify everything, decarbonization, digitization, and decentralization. Um, and that's kind of what we work on at Scale Microgrid, specifically that decentralization piece. And so this is, talk a little bit about this, the idea, because you at the time you were still Energy Redux when you came up with the idea for uh, Scale? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, Energy Redux, what's called a cogeneration company, right? And so it's cogeneration or combined heat and power. It's a good technology, primarily runs on fossil gas, right? And so when I started this, you know, 11, 12 years ago, working at a company called Redux Engine and Equipment Company, we went through a few mergers. If you were going to build decentralized electric generation, solar and storage weren't really at the maturity point from a technology standpoint that they needed to be at in order to do it in an economically viable way. So what a cogeneration system is, is a very, very efficient way of using natural gas to provide both electricity and heat to a commercial and industrial facility. Typically, there's also some residential, but that's, you know, it's mostly a CNI product. And that's what I started working on in the space. That sort of led me into solar and storage, right? And I started to learn a lot more about solar and storage because I was hearing from my customers, but I was also just personally interested in, you know, it's great that we're reducing greenhouse gases by 20, 30, 35%, which is typically the environmental impact of a CHP system. But like, how do we get to 90% or 100%, right? And, you know, it just so happened that around the time that I was starting to ask these questions, a lot of technology providers were starting to make big breakthroughs, specifically in lithium-ion batteries that kind of changed the landscape for how you think about designing these systems. So, you know, the first part of my work at Energy Redox was kind of trying to figure out how to integrate CHP systems with solar and storage. And I did a few of those projects. And then I think me and my co-founders kind of lost interest in CHP, right, is maybe a good way to put it. We still do some CHP systems, but like we wanted the backbone to really be solar and storage. And that was really the precipice for starting Scale Microgrid Solutions, sort of going out on our own to try to build these systems in a more renewable way. And, you know, it's been a crazy journey because, you know, the technology curve with all this type of stuff is super duper duper steep. So how we build projects today and how we built projects five years ago are entirely different, but it's cool, right? And I think ultimately that's what we're doing for our you know, CNI customers is we're essentially turning buildings into power plants, right? Lots of solar on the roof, solar in the parking lot, right? Solar wherever you can put it, a good energy storage system that allows you to manage and time shift that load. And then a dispatchable generation asset to make sure that if the grid goes down, the facility can continue to meet its operational requirements. And yeah, you know, how we deliver that value proposition changes as technology matures. But that's kind of the common thread of what I've been doing for the last dozen years. Yeah, I imagine it's been a, a wild ride starting in 2016. So what were some of those challenges early on? Because obviously, when you're first getting started, it was your first time as a CEO. So you had to build a team as well, and then figure out who, what your product offering was going to be and who your initial clients were going to be as well. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I guess to begin with, right, like I got really, really lucky in that I started this company with really four people, all of whom are close friends of mine who are amazing, right? And so Ryan Goodman, who's our CEO, is like an amazing business mind, right? His dad, Howard, is our CTO and is one of the best power engineers of the last like half century, right? Is a legend in our industry and is brilliant engineer. 
guy named Duncan Campbell, who is like sort of like Howard, but in the digital world, right? And does sort of all our modeling and optimization. And then a guy named Pete Crasco, who's a military buddy of mine, who oversees all our construction, project management, stuff like that. And I don't think any of us could have done it without the other four, right? So it really kind of took a village. But, you know, we started with a really strong team. And then we were able to add on to that with a bunch of remarkable people. Currently, we have about 75 people at the company. And they're all amazing, right? Like we've gotten lucky on a number of fronts. But look, I think, you know, the biggest challenge that we had when we first started the company, and this is probably not surprising, was raising money, right? Yeah. We're a hardware business, right? At the end of the day. And the average project that we build is like five to $6 million, right? There are smaller projects in our portfolio. There are much bigger projects, but on average, it's about five to $6 million to, to build one of these things. And that means you need a good capital stack behind you in order to do that. So when we started the company in 2015, it was not a good time to start a climate tech company. Sort of the history of this, right, is that a lot of investors got really excited about climate tech during kind of Obama's first term, right? Yeah. And put a lot of money into it. That's when Tesla was founded, but that's also when Solyndra was founded, right? And even though today, right, like the return on those climate tech 1.0 companies from a venture standpoint is really, really good. And that wasn't the case in 2015, right? There are a lot of bad stories about climate tech. So early stage investors in general were staying away from it. Subsequently, we've seen that market kind of change and unchange like three or four times, right? But it was really, really difficult to convince people to sort of get behind us and write checks that were big enough in order to let us do what we needed to do, right? And I think that's, you know, when I talk to a lot of founders in the vertical farming space, right, it's kind of the same story, right? Which is like, you could find people to write you a million dollar check, but you might as well set it on fire, right? Like you really need to be able to raise it, you know, probably a hundred million dollar scale in order to pull some of these businesses off. And that's really, really tricky to do. And so ultimately for us, you know, it was kind of, I don't know, there was a phase where it was kind of like beg and borrow from friends and family in order to like make payroll and keep the company afloat. And then ultimately we were able to build some of these projects and really show people what we were able to do. That opened up a whole new world of financial opportunities for us. And in 2019, we were able to close a $500 million round with Warburg Pincus, which is a private equity company, one of the sort of most illustrious private equity companies in existence today. I think it's the oldest private equity firm in the world. And they've been like remarkably helpful in sort of helping us think about how to grow and scale the business. But again, right, like that was definitely the biggest challenge is trying to figure out how to get the amount of capital we needed to really, you know, not just execute a few projects, but lay the foundation for a really good business. It definitely was not easy. We, I think at one point we counted and we had like over 100 investor meetings where the outcome was very bad. And so it was just kind of like stick to itiveness. And then we kept going back and we kept kind of figuring out a way to survive until we got an opportunity. And then I think we've made the most of that opportunity. Yeah, it sounds like it mirrors a lot of what we see here in terms of timing and raising capital with uh, vertical farming. And so for folks that are new to this, I'm also curious, I'm wondering if the visibility of someone like Elon with Tesla and, and sort of education, educating people, good or bad, depending on what people's opinion of him is, I'm wondering how that affects what you're able to do in terms of getting the word out about what's possible. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, right? I mean, I think Look, the reality is, is that Elon Musk is the most important climate tech founder of all time, right? I mean, Tesla is the most important clean tech company that's ever come. You think back like 10 years ago, right? The idea of an electric car was preposterous. And when you talk to a lot of climate experts, that's what they would tell you is that the sector we're really worried about is the 33% of greenhouse gas emissions that come from transportation, because we have no idea how to fix that, right? And Tesla fixed that right? I mean, the impact that they had can't be overstated, both on the transportation side, but also their stationary battery project or products have been instrumental in helping decarbonize the electricity grid and deal with intermittency problems that are associated with renewable energy, predominantly wind and solar. And so you can't really overstate the impact that Tesla's had on our industry or climate in general. I'll separate that a little bit from Elon Musk, right? Because I think that, you know, Sometimes he's super helpful and sometimes he's not. And I think lately it's been more not helpful than helpful. 
look, I think, you know, that's one of the things that really worries investors about, you know, our space is that when, in my experience, the best entrepreneurs go and, you know, talk to investors, they seem a little crazy, right? And, and I've had this conversation with a lot of vertical farming folks and, and indoor agriculture folks as well. I think it's kind of the same reception, right? Which is this sounds like so ambitious. You must be insane to try to pull this off. And look, I think like in recent months or years, the guy who's kind of the figurehead of our industry has given people a lot of pause in terms of his mental stability. And so that's not super helpful. But, you know, again, right, like you still can't understate like the importance he had and the Tesla team had in sort of moving this industry forward. And then look, there are a lot of other great founders that have come up and are a lot more stable than Elon. But, you know, I think he, for better or worse, is kind of the figurehead of our industry. And I hope he thinks about that, right? Like, you know, I don't know him. Like we do a lot of work with Tesla. They've always been great for us. They build amazing product at a really good price point. They stand behind what they do. Been a great partner for our business. But, you know, I don't know when he's making decisions. I hope he realizes that like a lot is riding on, you know, the world's perception of him and he doesn't scare too many people away. Yeah. And now that he's got a new platform <laughs> to do it with, it's, it's a little weird, scared to see what, what's going to happen. So uh, shifting yeah, gears. Scary, sure. <laughs> so talk a little bit about the work that you do, you know, take us to present day, what your current offerings are. I know you do work in microgrids, maybe even defining that term for the listener, you know, for people to understand the, the entire grid, what defines a microgrid and then some of the work you're doing there as well would be interesting to hear about. Yeah. So the highest level way to think about it is a microgrid is a personal power plant, right? Um, and so you think about how people have always received electricity. It's been from the grid, right? So there's a power plant a few hundred miles away, generates electricity, comes through the wires. That's what you use. And a microgrid is really taking that electricity generation and making it locally, right? So, you know, again, right, the core of any microgrid built today for the most part is solar and storage. So you're going to put a lot of solar panels on your property, whether that's in the roof, in the parking lot, in the field behind your facility. And then uh, you're going to complement that with battery storage, right? Um, and that's kind of the hub of what we build is solar storage systems. Now, that in and of itself is usually not sufficient for a lot of CNI customers, especially customers who value resilience, like our friends in the vertical farming community. Um, and so then typically you need a third component which is a dispatchable generator, right? And that can run on a number of different source fuels. Traditionally, these things have been built with natural gas generators, but you know, cleaner fuels are coming in the mix, whether that's renewable natural gas or green hydrogen, things like that, all of which we're, experienced, you know, we're experimenting with. And ultimately, right, the goal is how do you take this mix of technologies and figure out how to use them together to create a value proposition that's economically, environmentally, and operationally optimized. And, you know, the fourth piece of that system is a switchgear and control system that does that, right? So generally speaking, when we build a system, you'll have solar panels kind of all over the place and then three boxes in the parking lot. One will be the dispatchable generator, one will be the battery, and one will be the brain. And when you do that, right, I think in general, especially in like high energy density use cases like vertical farming, you can significantly reduce your electricity bills. You can have resilience. So during a power outage, you know, plants don't die or servers don't crash, whatever the, the use case is. And then you can typically reduce your greenhouse gas emissions, at least your scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions by 30 to 50 percent, which whether you're thinking about this through an ESG framework or just like being a good human framework is pretty important. And so that's like the basics of what we build. And, you know, hopefully we'll get into this, but I think, you know, one of the use cases that we really love and one of the industries that we're really excited about is vertical farming. And so we've built a few projects in that space. Some have worked out better than others, but, you know, I think it's a really, really cool application of the technology. And it's an industry whose mission is very consistent with ours, right? Which is something that's really important to me and our employees is making sure we're working with companies who are trying, you know, work towards the same end goals as we are. When did uh, vertical farming get on your radar? So I think like maybe 2017, I had a buddy from grad school who went and worked at Bowery Farming. He was kind of one of the first 10 or 12 employees at Bowery Farming. And initially it was just like, hey, I'm working on an indoor farm. And I was like, what's that? I want to come see it. And originally it just like piqued my curiosity, right? 
then I started to meet the team and sort of understand the narrative and see what they were trying to do. And that's a ridiculously talented team of people at Bowery. And I kind I got pretty hooked on it pretty quickly. But I also saw like the application of what we were building, right? And I think, you know, for Bowery, the conversation started with a, you know, a conversation about resilience, which is, you know, what are you guys going to do if there's a major power outage that lasts, you know, a week, a month, whatever the case might be. And, you know, they obviously, you know, are very, very focused on sustainability, which is, I think, a key issue in, in the vertical farming community right now. And then the economics matter a lot, right? Because ultimately you're trying to, you know, produce a pound of lettuce that's, you know, economically comparable to, you know, traditionally grown crops. And so you kind of put those two things together and it was a good, you know, we thought it was a good project to do. They agreed. We built it. I think that system was commissioned in 2018. It's been a pretty good relationship for us ever since, but that was kind of our first step into vertical farming and indoor agriculture. And yeah, we've done a bunch in the space since then. And I don't know, in general, are like very supportive of the industry, think it's a good thing. You know, our role in it is trying to make sure that, you know, we help solve some of the energy challenges that, you know, are becoming increasingly apparent when it comes to indoor ag. Yeah, I think it's one of the topics that comes up a lot when people talk about vertical farming. You know, you can't get too far down that road in terms of that conversation without people bringing up, you know, the impact of the power needed, you know, the electricity needed. And so I'm wondering, having worked in different industries, was there anything that you saw different about the the challenges or the needs specifically about folks in the vertical farming space? And I know you've, you've worked with a couple of other folks after Bowery as well. Yeah, you know, I think the first thing about the vertical farming space that was really clear to us and I continue to be, you know, like convinced of is we need it, right? I mean, if you just look at the facts, right? 85% of the arable land on earth is already used, the population's growing, climate change is happening, weather's becoming increasingly more predictable. You know, we're not so far away from not being able to feed humanity, right? Yeah. And you know, I don't know, right? Like back to my experience in the military, I went to a lot of places in the world where I saw what, you know, malnutrition and starvation looks like. And it's fucked up, right? It's not fair. And I wish more people had that experience of at least, you know, being in those communities and seeing the folks that this impact. But this is like a very, very, very real challenge. And, you know, I think vertical farming represents at least a partial solution to that problem, right? If we could figure out how to sustainably grow crops in controlled environments, we don't have to, you know, have a population that starves. And so I think that was the number one thing for us is like, regardless of how like hairy or complex this is, we're using what we're good at to enable an industry that really matters to sort of take the next step, right? But then look, you know, from an electrical engineering standpoint, a vertical farm is basically a data center for plants, right? And so if you look at the load profile of most indoor agriculture facilities, and you look at the load profile of a data center, they're basically exactly the same. And so that's one of the you know, starting points for us is we had a lot of experience building these systems for data centers. And we were able to take a lot of that knowledge and bring it into the indoor agriculture community. And then, you know, obviously there are tweaks and there are things that you change depending on the use case and the application. And, you know, every vertical farm that we've worked on or looked at is a little bit different in terms of the type of technology they're using, you know, the growth mechanism, whether it's, you know, hydroponics or, you know, and all that sort of stuff. You know, the basic premise is you have, you know, a flat predictable load. And so from an electrical standpoint, that gives you, that's like perfect, right? That's where you can go in and start manipulating like time of use pricing with batteries and making sure you're buying renewable electrons from the grid and then dispatching them at night when most of the electrons are fossil heavy and things like that. And so ultimately, I think that's the thing that got us hooked on it was not only is this like a really good thing to do for humanity, but also the technology we build delivers a really compelling value proposition in terms of, you know, the economic impact we have, resilience, sustainability, as compared to some of the industries, the other industries we work, we just think it's really, really compelling. And so that's what's kept us around, so to speak. You've also did some work with Fifth Season, which has made news recently for recently for shutting down, which is, you know, some of what's happening and what we're seeing consolidation. And this is normal for any industry. I mean, I think any industry that is around long enough, you're going to see companies come and go. And so can you talk a little bit about the the work you did with them as well? 
Yeah. So I guess first off, right, and this is one of the things I think a lot about in clean tech, right, is I have a lot, I have a ton of respect for everyone who puts themselves out there and tries, right? And, you know, the fifth season team, right, it was originally called Robotney when we first got involved in it. Those guys gave it everything they had, right? They really did. And they built a really, really cool facility. And sometimes this stuff doesn't work out, right? That's just kind of the game that we play. We knew that when we invested in them. And, you know, not everything works out, right? So I think in turn, you know, the, the first thing, and I think this is good for everyone who's thinking about a career in vertical farming or indoor agriculture or clean tech to know, is that the probability of failure is high, but like, it's still worth it, right? It really is. Because I think, you know, all those folks, and I've talked a bunch of them, you know, since they announced they were shutting down shop. I think they can all sleep easy at night knowing that, you know, they tried to tackle a Herculean problem, gave it everything they had. And, uh, you know, look, sometimes things don't work out. You know, with that said, you know, that's one of the things that we really like about the way we build microgrids is we build them very modular, right? And so, you know, when we make an investment in a company, and when I say an investment, maybe I should take a step back, right? How we do most of our projects is through a financial arrangement called an energy as a service agreement. And so essentially we build the entire system for zero money down, right? We invest all the CapEx to build the system. And then we sell the electricity back to the consumer, just like a utility does, right? And so you get a per kilowatt hour bill for the electricity you use. And, you know, as such, every system we build, or at least most systems we build represent a capital investment for scale microgrid. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, right, when we think about the bankability of these investments, we don't want to be able to just build these projects for Fortune 500 companies and rich people, right? We want to be able to, you know, build these projects for cool startups that we believe in or, you know, disadvantaged communities, low-income communities, tribal lands, things like that. In order to do that, you have to design the system in a way in which the equipment has really high residual value in the event of a failure. So what's going to happen with fifth season is that we built them a system. They shut down operations. We're working through some of the details, you know, right now in terms of exactly what this is going to look like. But it's, what's probably going to happen is we're going to pick the equipment up and we're going to bring it to another customer and we're going to use it there. And so, you know, I think, you know, that's kind of how we think about these systems and designing and financing these systems is really based on modularity, you know, transferability, things like that. And our engineering team does an amazing job of like putting packages together that make that feasible. And so, you know, when things like this happen, it's obviously like super unfortunate and it's emotional. And, you know, everyone in our company was a huge fan of fifth season and what they were doing was amazing. And the produce they were producing was amazing. One of the best salads I've ever had. But again, right, like this is a very, very tough business and, you know, not every time is it going to work out. And so, you know, you kind of lick your wounds, you pick up your equipment, you go to the next one and you do it again. And that's kind of our plan in this situation. Yeah. I think anyone who's started a business, been in a business, been an entrepreneur knows that failure is sort of like par for the course. And it's just a, a function of how quickly you can recover from it because it's inevitable. It's going to happen in some form or another. And I think your ability to sort of dust yourself off and lesson, you know, learn your lessons from what happened and then how you can do something better going forward. Yeah, for sure. And if you're going to fail, right, doing it in the context of trying to save humanity is not a bad use of time, right? And I think, you know, that's definitely how I feel about all the fifth season team, right? I have a lot of respect for, you know, what they tried to do and what they put on the line in order to get there and wish them nothing but the best moving forward. I'm curious, uh, when folks are considering a vertical farming project, and I, I know obviously because of the nature of this show, this is specifically who we're speaking to, what should farms be considering when it comes to their energy usage, their planning, you know, building a, a new facility? You know, what are some of the things typically they may not be thinking about that they should be? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I would start off with, right, is that if you're going to build a vertical farming facility, energy needs to be a core competency of what you do, Right. And if people aren't aware of this, right, whether the, you know, this is the number one argument against vertical farming, right? And whether that's made by folks in traditional agriculture or whether that's made by investors or whatever the case might be, right? It's that the, you know, reason that we are trying to build a bunch of vertical farms is to solve, you know, help solve some of the impacts of climate change, right? And if vertical farming is contributing to climate change, 
then it's kind of counterproductive, right? And so, you know, energy is a core competency of vertical farming. You have to figure out not only how to grow delicious, economically viable crops in a warehouse, but also how to do that with that while minimizing your carbon footprint. And also how to do that while making sure that a power outage doesn't cost you your business. And so, and by the way, from an economic standpoint, typically for vertical farming customers, utility bills are the number one operational cost, right? Especially as we move more towards robotics and AI and all that jazz and are replacing people with process in the farm. And so, you know, that's what I would tell everyone who's thinking about getting into this industry is you better have someone who really understands energy on your team, right? And then, right, there's a lot of different considerations. The first one is where you locate the farm itself, right? And there's obviously a ton of factors that go into this. You want to be close to population centers, et cetera, et cetera. But you also want to locate your farm in an area where the grid mix is more sustainable than other places, right? So if you're building one of these things in Mississippi or Georgia, right, where this is predominantly coal power, the environmental footprint of your lettuce or kale or whatever you're making is not going to be good, right? If you're doing this in California, Oregon, or Washington State, right, upstate New York, it's going to be a lot better. So location, to begin with, matters a lot. That's true in terms of sustainability. It's also true in terms of economics, right? Because power costs in Mississippi are a lot cheaper than they are in California. So you have to sort of think about that in the context of where you're locating your facility to begin with. And then look, you know, I think that personally, every single vertical farm should have at a bare minimum solar panels on the roof and a battery in the park, right? And I think generally speaking, right, and, you know, every facility is a little bit different, just putting solar panels on your roof can produce, you know, anywhere from like 20 to 30% of the power you consume in a year, which is a big step in the right direction, right? Yeah. Then if you good. pair that with a battery, you can typically in most areas of the country, make your facility at least sort of 50% run on renewables, which is like sort of the next step, right? And then if you want to get to, you know, 80, 90, 100%, that's when you got to call me, right? Or someone like me, because doing that really has to be customized at this point in time in history and, and requires a lot of like fancy technology that's not super commonplace. And so, you know, I think that's, you know, what the message I would send to people is there's a lot of different ways to make progress on this issue, right? There's a lot of different technologies to consider. There's a lot of different ways to do it, but you got to be thinking about it, right? That's the most important thing. And you got to sort of identify that as a core competency of the business. And I think, you know, the folks that, that we work with that do that, I think have come together with really good plans and are able to sort of answer some of the critics when it comes to, you know, the economic and environmental viability of vertical farming. But if you're not prepared for those questions, you don't have a good plan, I think you're probably going to run into some trouble, if not now, sometime in the near future. Yeah, it's really important. And it's such a, a good reminder to have that consideration as early as possible in your planning process. What are you seeing in terms of innovations or improvements? You know, when we talk about solar, we talk about, you know, their capacity to how they're changing, like the way they're designed, the cells, the batteries can hold longer storage time. So what has you most excited in terms of like where the industry is going and, you know, improvements or developments or, or stuff that's in the works, you know, that you're seeing the most. Yeah. Help. Batteries. Right. I mean, like, look, I mean, climate tech and clean tech and renewable energy, whatever you want to call the industry. I mean, the pace of innovation is incredible. And so we're seeing like so much improvement across the value stack that it's crazy. You know, this has obviously become a real thing. It's become, you know, a government focus, both, you know, domestically and internationally. Tons of money is pouring into the space. Tons of smart people are coming in. And so the pace of innovation is really staggering. And that's true on solar and it's true on dispatchable generation. It's true on the digital side of things with controls and switch gear and things like that. But where it's most apparent is in batteries, right? And I think, you know, generally speaking, the way to think about this is six or seven years ago, lithium ion batteries weren't a thing outside of like consumer appliances right? No one thought that you could drive a car with the ion batteries, at least not an affordable car, right? No one thought you could power a building with the ion cells. I was in a lot of meetings where engineers who had 30 years of electrical engineering experience told me I was crazy because I wanted to use batteries on projects, right? 
And now we're in a place where lithium ion batteries are commonplace. Like the deployment curve is insane. I think more batteries were deployed in 2021 than in the rest of history combined, right? Like that type of exponential growth curve. But lithium ion is just one chemistry, right? And we're really just scratching the surface of what's possible. And so there are some things that about lithium ion batteries that are inherently really good, but they tend to be good for sort of short duration, right? Like two to four hours of storage. And that's really where like they're economically viable and they make sense. And so the challenge we need to solve, right, is both daily and seasonal over time. And there are going to be different battery chemistries that help us solve those challenges. And so ultimately, right, there are some specific technologies that we're super excited about, iron, air, and nickel hydrogen being two chemistries that we're spending a lot of time on right now, trying to sort of figure out how they work and, you know, what their degradation curves are going to be and things like that these new chemistries are coming online. And so ultimately what that's going to mean is that, you know, today we might need to use fossil gas or, you know, some form of dispatchable generation to solve, you know, 20 to 30% of the power needs for a facility. I think five years from now, that won't be the case, right? You'll just have like a lithium ion battery and then another kind of battery, and then maybe a third kind of battery. And the combination of those three technologies will be able to give you both 24 seven and 365 reliability. And so that's where the most innovation is happening. That's where it's most exciting. I think, you know, policies like the Inflation Reduction Act are going to sort of supercharge manufacturing in the sector. And so we're seeing sort of in the short term, there's a lot of like inflation, supply chain instability with respect to pricing, but you're definitely seeing like that curve come down pretty steeply. So really, really excited about the future. And I think that's going to be a game changer for distributed energy in general. That's helpful. Thanks for sharing that. I saw that some of the work that you do is focused on what's happening on tribal lands. Can you speak a little bit about that as well? That's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I guess this kind you know, our tribal lands initiative kind of stemmed from a homework assignment that I gave a bunch of people on our BD team about two years ago. Right. And when you think about distributed energy and kind of what I've been talking about in general, there's so many good things that can come from it. But if not properly managed and not properly thought about it, it also can lead to a lot of environmental justice issues, right? So if you just think about, right, a microgrid is a personal power plant, right? Well, if like rich people in Fortune 500 companies all get personal power plants and the rest of us have to use the grid, like what kind of society does that create? Because the costs of managing the grid are basically fixed costs. So the more the people that leave the grid, right, the higher the percentage of fixed costs, those of us, us that remain have to pay. And so, you know, it's something that, you know, we try to think about constantly and we try to think about within the context of every project that we're building. And out of that exercise, a statistic emerged, right, which is that less than 1% of the United States population lives on tribal lands and 75% of unelectrified homes are on tribal lands in the United States. And so as you learn more and more about it, you realize in addition to, you know, centuries of injustice that have been faced by tribal communities, energy equity has not been available to most tribal lands forever, right? And it's a real problem. And so that was kind of the precipice for us wanting to get involved in tribal lands. Subsequently, the Department of Energy has started to come out with a lot of big grants and incentives to help sort of bridge the gap of bankability with tribal lands. So that's helped us deploy capital and and sort of make progress on a lot of these projects. But look, I think like the number one thing for us is it's just good work to do, right? When you meet with these tribes and you hear stories about, you know, what they and generations of folks behind them have had to deal with and put up with, you can't help. You just want to help, right? And so I think that's what we're trying to do with portion of our business and our tribal lands initiative right now, which is really build renewable microgrids to help support tribal communities, provide them with access to cheaper, more reliable, more sustainable electricity. And we're working on it, right? It's a tough nut to crack in a lot of cases. There's a lot of sort of cultural stuff that we've had to learn along the way in terms of, you know, how to interact with tribes and sort of some of their sensitivities and, and things like that. But we're making progress and it's something we're really passionate about and uh, we love working on those projects. 
Yeah, I definitely applaud the work you guys are doing there. And I definitely encourage listeners to spend more time on your website, you know, seeing some of the projects you're involved in there. So I appreciate you being generous with your time. I know we're getting close to the top of the hour. You also have a capital solutions arm. Is that tied directly to the projects you're working on? Or is is that another thing you can talk a little bit about? (laughs) Yeah, no. So it's a good thing. And we have a chief investment officer. His name's Julian Torres. If I didn't talk about this, he would be all sorts of happy. So this is good. No. so, So basically the genesis of our capital solutions business, which is essentially a private equity firm that sits inside our company that's focused on distributed energy capital deployment, was we got a shot, right? So like, as I talked about in the beginning, the hardest thing for us was raising money. And I think one of the reasons it was really hard for us to raise money is because the investment community didn't understand what we were trying to do, right? And so after we sort of hit that milestone and we had money, we started thinking about all the developers and entrepreneurs who were behind us who didn't have access to that capital because there weren't investors who understood what they were trying to do. And so, you know, sort of the thought process was like, okay, why don't we take a piece of this fund we just raised that we're investing in our own projects and go out and try to work with other third-party developers and entrepreneurs to help them achieve their goals as well. And uh, we brought in Julian, who came from RBC to run that business. And he's done a fantastic job with it. And we're doing a lot of cool stuff that we have our hands in like pretty much anything you can call a distributed energy project we're looking at and investing in right now. And it's, it's awesome, right? I mean, I think it's, you know, especially when we're funding entrepreneurs who have been traditionally underserved, right. And don't have access to capital, you know, watching those folks, you know, see their dreams realized in terms of the projects they're building, right. And being able to actually see their vision through, is, I don't know, it's like, it's a really, really good feeling. So it's, you know, that's a big part of our business today. About half of the capital that we deploy is on projects that we develop internally, and half is on third party development now. And, you know, I I could see a world in which like, that's like 75% of the money we're spending, right? And so it's, it's really exciting. I think we've learned a lot, right? And having sort of Warburg Pincus, which is like a real private equity firm behind us to teach us how to think about and do some of these things has been unbelievably valuable. We definitely couldn't do it without them. But that was kind of the genesis of that was just like, hey, this was really hard for us. How do we make it easier for the next generation? And, you know, I think slowly but surely we're making progress on that front, but it's a really cool aspect of what we do and something I'm really proud of. Yeah. I imagine it gives you a front row seat to see some pretty interesting projects, technologies, you know, forward thinking entrepreneurs. (laughs) Yes. I mean, It's honestly like really inspiring, right? And I think one of the reasons I like it, right? Like when I sit in those meetings, I'm like generally useless because like I don't really understand how finance works. So I'm not the decision maker, right? But, you know, I like going, right? Because I think that's one of the cool things. And this is maybe a positive note to end on, right? Is I think this is true in both indoor agriculture, vertical farming and clean tech, right? Is like the quality of people that are coming into these industries is insane. And anytime I like get like too much hubris, right? Or I want to like rest on my laurels or anything like that. I go meet some of these folks who are the next generation of entrepreneurs coming up. And like, I very quickly go back to work, right? Because it's like super inspiring in terms of how creative and innovative and committed these folks are to maximizing utilization of these technologies, inventing new technologies, inventing new ways to use technologies, all these types of things. And they're starting to succeed, right? I mean, that's the coolest thing about this is you're starting to see more and more companies, you know, come up and really get to maturity and really have a positive impact on the world. And so, you know, ultimately, as much as you, you know, hear all this doom and gloom in like the mainstream media, right? Just, I guess, the media in general, about climate and the situation we're in, which by the way, like a lot of it's warranted. It's not situation on paper. The reason for hope is the people that are working on this problem, right? And I think, you know, across our industry, and I'll just lump vertical farming into climate tech, right? It's just an amazing, amazing family of people who are coming together and just breaking down doors left and right. And if that like sort of exponential growth curve continues to happen, I think we're going to make the best out of a really bad situation, we're going to be all right. So there's a lot of work to do, but a lot of really smart, talented people who are working on it and cool to be part of that community and cool to work with those folks on a day-to-day basis for sure. Yeah, I must give you a great front row seat to what's possible and give you hope for the future as well. So maybe just kind of like 
ending on, on that note, you know, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. You know, a lot of people in end of 2019 had some plans about what they were going to do in 2020. And, you know, you saw what happened there. So just if you can look a little bit forward, you know, when you think about roadmap, when you think about upcoming projects, when you think about things that have you excited over the next 12 months for scale, microgrids, what comes to mind? Yeah. You know, one of my mentors in this industry is a guy named Jigger Shaw, who now runs the loan programs office at the Department of Energy. So I'm not allowed to talk to him as much as I used to, (laughs) but uh, he's like super important now. But he spoke at a conference I was at last week and, you know, kind of the message he sent to people was you got to stop thinking in M's and start thinking in B's, right? And generally speaking, what he was talking about was, you know, a lot of us have gotten into this industry and we've built viable businesses and we can, you know, write paychecks to our employees and there's some stability. But if you think, if you like the scale of the opportunity is such that we really should be thinking bigger, right? Both from an impact standpoint and financial standpoint. And I think that's really like the big next step for us, right? Is, you know, we have built our business I'm really, really proud of, but we're still kind of like this niche business, right? We, you know, work in hundreds of millions of dollars, definitely not billions of dollars yet. And I think, you know, that next step is really challenging, right? It's just as hard as the first step to get to kind of where we are today. That next step is really challenging. And I think it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of commitment, a lot of camaraderie to be able to say like, yeah, what we're doing isn't good enough, right? Like we need to go bigger. We need to keep taking risks. We need to keep, you know, making progress and doing crazy shit. And that's, I think what I'm excited about, right? I think I work with a group of people who are up for it, right? Who are willing to say like, yeah, like we've built something cool, but it's not good enough. Like, let's keep going. Let's keep doubling down. And I'm excited to be a part of that. So I think, you know, that'll be 2023 for us, right? Is like, we're going to take a shot at B's and it might work out and it might not, but like, we're going to go out swinging. And so, yeah, that's going to be next year for us. Hopefully I'll get to sleep for like two weeks at the end of December before that happens. Then we'll get going in January. Given the audience for this podcast, is there any parting notes or parting thoughts that you have specifically for the folks? You know, there's a lot of the, you know, your fellow leaders in this industry, CEOs and founders of this growing industry. Any thoughts for them? Yeah. I mean, I guess two things. I mean, one, keep going, right? I think as somewhat sort of independent, objective third party watching the growth of this industry, I think the progress that's been made is remarkable, but like the potential that's in front of y'all is unbelievable. And I do think it's going to be a major industry and a major source of food production for humanity moving forward and we need it. So keep going. And then I guess the second thing is if you have energy questions, my door is always open. Let me know. I love working with the community and, you know, would be happy to, you know, chat with you if uh, you, you got any questions, concerns, thoughts on whether it's distributed energy or just electricity in general, let me know. Sounds good. Well, Tim, I really appreciate your time and sharing your inspiring story. It's it's so interesting to see, you know, how the arc of your career started and what was important for you and what influenced you and what motivated you. And you can see that as a common thread for everything you've been doing up until the present day. And I can still sense the excitement that you have for what's possible. And it, it really like gets people motivated, gets listener motivated. And I think it keeps, I'm sure your partner's motivated because it feels like we're all marching towards the same initiative to make the world a better place and doing your part and you know folks in vertical farming are doing their part as well so I, I really thank you hey man brother well thank you so much for having me i'm a big fan and i appreciate you having me on so uh scale microgridsolutions.com for folks to learn more anywhere else you want to send folks to get connected with you no that's about it i'm on twitter at timothy Hayde. if you want to see some of my rants at least as long as twitter exists <laughs> so <laughs> thanks Sounds so much good. for having me harry i'll talk to you later brother Thanks again to Tim for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes are available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Full show notes, summaries, timestamps, key takeaways, any resources mentioned during the conversation. We go out of our way to do that so you don't have to sit here taking notes. You can listen to the conversation, sit back with your cocktail of choice, and enjoy all the information that's being shared here. And then just go look at anything that we talked about that was relevant for you. Thanks to our season seven title sponsor, Cultivated. If you are looking into a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. 
Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Leave out that last E. If you're a regular listener to the show, you'll know that this is the space where I get to talk about some of the fantastic sponsors and supporters of this show. If you are interested in being one of those sponsors, by all means, reach out to me directly, harry at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. We've got inventory available for season seven, and the reach of the show just continues to increase year over year. And we'd love to partner with you and get the word out about your company or service. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Learn more at fullcast.co. And as a reminder, if you're enjoying this show or any of the past episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read that out on a future episode. Tune in next week for my conversation with Henry Erst of Control Union. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.